Lemonada. Hi, it's Claire, and I produce In Recovery. Our team is excited to be giving you a sneak preview of another new Lemonada Media series called After 1954. Brown v. Board of Education held the promise of creating an integrated school system with equal education for all. But what you may not know is that tens of thousands of Black teachers lost their jobs in the wake of that Supreme Court decision, leaving a gap that reverberated through generations of students to come. Hosted by educator and nonprofit leader Ami Eubanks-Davis, this impactful five-part series spans the decades to provide an important look at the impact a Black educator can have on a Black student's life, the future of Black education, and who we become when we see ourselves reflected in the leaders around us. We're going to play you a clip of the first episode right now. To hear the rest of the episode, search for After 1954 wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out the link in the episode notes. The Supreme Court is due to make a decision pretty soon, sir. Certainly there are none who believe that all states would react calmly to the Supreme Court decision. This is and has been an issue which, like it or not, we had to face eventually. On May 17, this court ruled unanimously that segregation in public schools was not legal. Those are the sounds of news programs from the 1950s when the United States had made a promise to black students that we would have equal access to education. But what happened afterwards? What stories did we lose in the fight to integrate our public schools? I'm Ami Eubanks-Davis, and this is After 1954. I want to tell you a story about my education as a Black student. I grew up on the south side of the city of Chicago, where in elementary school, my three siblings and I got a strong education. We lived in all Black neighborhoods, and we were taught by many Black teachers. But our parents knew that if we stayed in Chicago public schools, our high school prospects would diminish and they could not afford private schools. Four kids, private school, too damn expensive. So they moved us to a suburb. They thought this would give us a better chance at a high quality education for free. Like they just thought, we're moving to a suburb. (laughs) It's gonna be great, they're strong schools. What my parents didn't know is that simply because we were black, We were going to be placed in remedial classes, no matter how academically talented we were. Yeah, like we scored high, actually, on the entrance exams. It didn't matter just because we were black and coming out of Chicago public schools. My mom and some other black parents decided to sue for the racial tracking of black kids, and they won. When I reflect on this time, I realize There was no one in that building who believed in black students from the inner city that we had anything to offer academically. We didn't have any black teachers. The experience was a nightmare, but it also inspired my own career. Years later, I became a sixth grade teacher in New Orleans, and now I run a nonprofit that supports college students to graduate with strong jobs. Given my family's experience 30 years after Brown, It seems we broke this promise we made to black students that they would have equal access to educational opportunities and black students to this day are still being left behind. And that in part is because there are not enough black teachers. And this is the part of the story we rarely talk about. Before Brown versus Board of Education, becoming a teacher was a pathway towards greater economic mobility for black people. 
nearly half of Black college graduates living in the South listed teaching as their occupation. With these jobs came status and pride. Honestly, they broke us into the middle class economically. But while teaching provided career opportunities for Blacks, the reality of the Jim Crow South was still prevalent. So when talks of integration began, Black teachers had their concerns, not only for their jobs, but also for the well-being of their students who would now be in classrooms where there'd be no Black teachers. And unfortunately, their concerns became a reality. 38,000 Black teachers were fired throughout integration. This means the number of Black educators in our public schools dramatically decreased during this time. And that number has never gone back up. The idea of Black teachers having been good or offering something to students is recent. That wasn't something people talked about in the 50s. That's Michelle Foster. She's worked all over the country in different levels of education. Today, she's a professor at the University of Louisville. And she knows about these educators who were fired during integration because she met with many of them. Her book, Black Teachers on Teaching, is an exceptional look into the lives and knowledge of those who taught in the 1950s, before and after desegregation. She captured their stories so we couldn't forget them. Here's Michelle. And I grew up thinking that Black people were pretty special. I mean, I just did. I thought, you know. So when I first started teaching in the Boston Public Schools and people talked about cultural deficit or the kids didn't have any language, I thought the people were insane. That had not been my experience. I was like, what are they talking about? And I knew that Black kids could do well in school with the right support, with the right education. My name is Michelle Foster, and I'm a professor at the University of Louisville in the College of Education and Human Development. I describe myself as a Black American woman who grew up in New England, and, well, I'm a mother, I'm a granddaughter, I'm a great-granddaughter. My great-great-grandfather was an enslaved man who ran away from Virginia to Massachusetts and built the house I grew up in, and my grandmother was his first grandchild. So in 1954, I would have been seven years old. I was in the North, living in Massachusetts, with my grandparents and my mother. The biggest thing I remember was hearing about Thurgood Marshall (laughs) and how this Black lawyer had won the case. So he was a hero in my family because he had fought so many civil rights cases. We have a five-point program already in effect, which will clean up and end segregation on the coaches in the South. I was at home hearing my grandfather talk about what a great decision it was. And I knew that it was going to be better for black people. I'm sure they said better for Negroes at that time. And my grandfather was particularly, and grandmother were particularly excited because it meant the dismantling, I think they thought, of segregation. But I don't think that it mattered particularly to me because I was a Catholic school kid. Even though I lived in the North, I did not live in the South. I had cousins and relatives who lived in Georgia. And so there was this excitement. I'm not sure that I fully understood what it was, that that was going to be a new day in the United States. 
My grandparents were probably the most influential people on me. My mother, of course, was influential, but my grandparents were it. You know, people said, oh, you didn't have a father. I had a grandfather. He was fabulous. He was wonderful. He was funny. He had had an eighth grade education, but he was self-taught. He read. He knew politics. He knew all about history. He was what you'd call today a race man. He believed in the race and he taught. So I came home from school one day and I said, you know, John Brown was a crazy man. My grandfather said, no, John Brown was a hero because he was willing to die for black people. My grandmother also took a Raggedy Ann doll that had red hair. She took the red hair out. She replaced it with black hair for Jan and she painted that doll black. And she gave me that doll. So I had black dolls before there were black dolls. And they used to tell me, you're the smartest little girl. I'd say, people don't like me. He'd say, well, then they don't know what they're missing. I know now that was all designed to fortify me, to be able to be successful in a world that they thought was opening up. They thought that. They were trying to get me ready. My grandfather always felt that if you depended on the schools to instill black excellence after desegregation, it wasn't going to happen. He would always say, Why would white people teach black kids to compete with their own kids? They're not going to do it. There's nothing in it for them, right? So my grandfather, if if he were alive today, he would be very concerned because he felt like if you want your kids to know their history, you can't depend on somebody else to teach it. You have to teach your kids what they need to know, what you want them to know. And he used to walk around the house and say, it's a sin to waste black talent and black brains, There are a couple of ways I would describe segregated black schools in the South. We have to remember that there were different kinds of black schools. There were some that were very rural and poor in impoverished Southern communities. At the same time, there were schools of excellence like Dunbar, Central High School. There were many, many schools. And so I think the way they were culturally affirming is people forget that the teachers were left alone. Teachers often had children sing, lift every voice and sing as the Negro National Anthem. They would teach about black heroes. One of the heroes they taught most about was George Washington Carver, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. So I think that there were ways in which teachers had a curriculum that they would implement in these schools that was far away from the oversight of the people that ran the schools. Let's put it that way. Children were encouraged to be on the debate team, to be in the chess club. And I think you have to remember that the children saw other Black children as leaders. They would be the president of the student council. They would be the kings and queens of the high school. um, And one of the things that's very clear, there's a very interesting book written by David Chichelsky. It's called Along Freedom's Road. It was about a school in North Carolina that was, was going to desegregate. And the people marched from a rural part of North Carolina all the way into Raleigh. And he's a historian. He couldn't quite understand why. And in the process of doing the interviews, he found that the parents of that school did not want the school to close because they understood that that was a school that was affirming them, affirming their children's identities, giving them opportunities for leadership. And I think that that's one of the things that we don't recognize about 
schools that were segregated. They had their own mascots. They had their own trophies. They had awards for winning various competitions. And in fact, when I was in North Carolina as a postdoc, one day there was a call made to the school and they were telling people to rush over to the old segregated school because they were going to bulldoze it. And that school had been empty and they were going to bulldoze all of the, the memorabilia in the school. And I think that's part of the cultural relevance and legacy of these schools that really, when you desegregated, was lost because it typically the schools merged and the black kids left their school and went to the white school. And it was no attempt to share the mascots. You just gave up what you had and you went to the white school. When the NAACP decided to launch the Brown case, there were teachers, especially in the American Teachers Association, these are the Black Teachers Association, who were concerned about Brown, and they weren't necessarily in favor of it. Now, remember, in order to go forward and push for this case, you had to have everybody on board. And so many of the Black teachers groups that were against it were charged with, you're just afraid because you're going to lose your job. And so it was seen as an individual concern rather than a more kind of national community concern. They were kind of shushed and told to just, you know, be quiet because they couldn't be more concerned about their jobs than children. So I probably became aware of this in the 80s, that black teachers had lost their jobs. And there were many, many, many articles. If you go into the historical record, you can actually see cases of teachers that sued the school districts for, their, for losing their jobs. I found some examples of teachers who went to court to try and keep their jobs. And so there were local examples of it, but it wasn't until people started to see the pattern. Before I wrote the book, Black Teachers on Teaching, I'm an academic. So I had to write lots of journal articles because in the academy, journal articles count. And then uh, Don Davis, who now is a famous publisher, was a young up-and-coming publisher at the New Press. And she contacted me. I don't know, out of thin air. She kind of said to me, you know, I know you've written all these articles and would you write a book called Black Teachers on Teaching? So I decided that before all the teachers that had lived through this were gone, I would start collecting the narratives to talk about what teachers said. And so I started looking for first-person narratives. And what I realized is there were very few by Black teachers. I decided to track the teachers down by contacting community organizations, uh, NAACP, Urban League, churches, because I knew that they often gave outstanding citizen awards. And I knew that often the teachers would be chosen. And so I contacted them to ask them to give me the names of teachers who were considered exemplary. Ruby Forsyth was an older teacher that I interviewed, and she had been teaching in a one-room schoolhouse for more than 50 years. One of the things I learned from her was that you cannot teach African-American children well if you don't have a good relationship with them. She would always say that she was like the children's mother. She would say, I'm your mother at school, and when you go back home, you go to your other mother. So Miss Ruby, as they called her, she had taught many, many generations of children in this school. Her husband had been a uh, minister in the little church and she was a teacher. So she was teaching like the third generation. She had taught their grandparents. But she was the one who only knew me by phone. 
I told her I was a black woman coming to the interview room. And she said, well, stay at this place down there. And that morning I got up and walked. And like I said, I thought, I said, how far? She said, about a mile. It was three. And when I got there, she was standing at the top of her driveway with her hand on her hips. And she had two or three people with her. And they laughed. And they said, oh, we didn't think a city slicker like you would make it. I was someone they didn't know. And so often I had to prove myself worthy of getting the interview. I had one teacher. I showed up at her, her school And she called her husband and she said, oh, I'm being interviewed and the woman's black, so it's going to go a lot longer. She knew that it would probably be a longer interview because she felt I would really want to hear what she had to say. So remember, I'm just a disembodied voice on the telephone for many of them. And so many of them, some of them didn't know I was a black woman until I actually showed up. I think the most shocking thing was some of the treatment that the black teachers had. The woman in Lindale, Texas is a good example of how the extremes to which they didn't want black teachers to teach white kids. So I reached out to one of the teachers I had interviewed. Her name was Irma Jean Moss. So she and her cousin were the only two teachers in a school that was a K-8 school that get to keep their jobs. And she said, the superintendent came and he said, You know, you and your cousin are going to be lucky because you're going to get to keep your jobs. Everybody else is going to be fired. This is in a little rural school district in Lindale, Texas. So she and the cousin went to the new school, the white school. But for the first year, they didn't teach any kids. They put them in a room because they did not want them to teach white kids. I don't want to start in your room, but I've heard said that some people are not going to send their children to a mixed school. Well, if you want to take your family and move them out of this district into an all-white district, you can do that. It's our job to make our school a school worth attending. But the school board has ruled that the children in a district will attend a school in that district, and I'm sure they're going to enforce that law. So they sat in a room, but of course they got paid, right? She said they would play cards and whatever. And eventually they started teaching because the white teachers were upset because they were getting paid and not doing any work. <laughs> so that was interesting. And she said it was because they had to have black teachers, but the, the little small district didn't want the black teachers teaching the white kids. That shocked me. That's a compliance. You got to have some black teachers, but we don't want them to teach white kids. So I think I was shocked to the extent to which these black teachers who in the end were excellent teachers were not seen as being good enough to teach white kids. What people don't understand about these schools is many of these schools, these black schools, the teachers were better educated in the black schools than the white schools. Because think about it. The black teachers didn't have a lot of options, so many of them had master's degrees. Some of the schools were, were accredited where the white schools weren't. The teachers had limited opportunities, so they became teachers with master's degrees. So I think that we often, when we talk about Brown, we overlook that part. Of course, we were trying to make the case that the schools were deprived, and often they were materially deprived. They didn't have the teacher's manuals. They didn't have the quality of books. But what they had were people who really cared about the kids. Now, some could say that the fact that you didn't have a lot of material might have been better because if you don't have a lot of textbooks, then you can create real lessons that draw on the kids' backgrounds, right? And so the material deprivation, it, it was bad, but I think that was countered by the way in which people cared about the kids and their, their families and their communities. Approximately 38,000 black teachers lost their jobs following the ruling in 1954. It makes me feel sad because one of the things you need to understand about the teachers is the teachers didn't exist in a vacuum. 
The teachers existed because there were networks surrounding them. They had the American Teachers Association, which would have been like the NEA for black teachers. So they would have conferences. They would talk about what are the best strategies for teaching black kids. You had historically black colleges who all had teacher ed programs. They would be interacting with them. So there was a network of institutions that surrounded these teachers. They often went north to teacher's college or to Indiana University to get master's degrees. What you see today is those structures don't exist anymore. I always, I say, here's a thought experiment. Suppose when the schools desegregated, instead of firing all the black teachers, not, they didn't fire them all, they had said, okay, we're going to place a black teacher with a white teacher in the classroom. And then the, the white teachers could have learned some of the ways in which the black teachers actually interacted with kids. But we didn't do that. So I think there would have been a lot to learn from these black teachers. But that opportunity is lost. So black teachers on teaching is often used in graduate schools because it's one of the few books that really gets at what the black teachers had to say about their own practice. And so I get lots of calls even to this day, an email, I'm a black teacher and I read your book in so-and-so class and I'd like to talk to you about that. So one of the most exciting things about the book is how it served as a kind of a guide for young black teachers who are becoming teachers in the 90s and the 2000s and also for scholars who are interested, who themselves are black teachers and now are in graduate school. So that's, I think, the thing that has most excited me about the work and, the, and part of the legacy I, I feel like I contributed to. Lemonada. <laughs>